0: Well, welcome to the, uh, the hardy band that have uh, braved the snow to get here. <laughs> um, for the benefit of the, uh, the probably several people that are uh, catching up on the podcast instead of driving over here in the snow, we have lemon and raisin scones today and they're extremely nice. So, um, Just wanted to make that point for the next time. <laughs> um, what we're going to be looking at today is the Trinity. And uh, I've said Trinity, what's the big deal? Because people often take the Trinity for granted and take that whole area of doctrine and, and theology for granted. But I think actually it's very significant. Um, if you look at King's Church and the way it is, and the things that we, our ethos, and the, and the feel, and the, all the things we, we do, actually a lot of it is to do with our understanding of the Trinity, and that will hopefully come out um, as we go through. And so I've said here in the notes, it's a a forgotten doctrine, question mark, and uh, I've got a quote here by a chap called Richard Rohr, who is a, a Catholic theologian and writer, and he writes about the Trinity and says, If Trinity is supposed to describe the very heart of the nature of God, and yet it has almost no practical or pastoral implications in most of our lives... If it's even possible that we could drop it tomorrow and it would be a forgettable throwaway doctrine, then either it can't be true, or we don't understand it. And um, and it is true that uh, so many people believe in the Trinity because it's orthodox, it's it's um, you know it's what Christian churches believe, and yet they haven't necessarily thought through the implications, so the, the practical implications of it. Um, are not clear, so for some people it's a bit of an academic curiosity or a bit of a quaint theological twist. Um, It might help us explain the Incarnation, you know, so how can God be in two places at once? You know, the Trinity helps us understand that a bit. Um, Or maybe the Atonement, you know, only God could work salvation for us, and so people use the Trinity to try and explain that. But in terms of our everyday lives, in terms of our church life and where we live it doesn't have seemingly a practical application now actually nothing could be further from the truth and so what I want to do in in this session this morning in the first half I'm going to look at the biblical basis for Trinity just to be thorough as I tend to be and then after our break we'll have a bit of discussion um, and then we're going to look at the implications for everything we are really and everything we do. So first of all is trinity in the bible well the word itself um isn't biblical it, it's basically a contraction it means triunity that sort of that's the the three in oneness of god that it's trying to get across but that word wasn't actually in the the bible it was later christians later thinkers that um that tried to grapple with this but it is there in the bible um even though the word was, was invented later, the, the, it's there as a revelation, as a, an unfolding revelation. So if you, if you remember back to our sessions on the Bible and on hermeneutics, um, we talked about the Bible as a progressive revelation, as um, you know, that there's more revelation as time goes by, as the, as, the, as the writings proceed, the nature of God is unfolded more and more. And there's greater understanding later on, and that's very evident in the case of Trinity. And of course, we have to remember as well that the New Testament books weren't written to define and describe doctrine. They were written for other reasons. They were written to usually to, to sort of encourage or correct error or whatever. They weren't there to spell out what scripture, what, what doctrine, uh, what doctrine is. So it was left really to later generations to sort of try and sort out and grapple with the truth that the Holy Spirit was revealing. Um, so let's go through what the what the Bible says and we'll talk first of all about the the three persons in the Trinity. And the Bible does reveal each of each person as fully divine. So it's obvious with God the Father Jesus prays to God the Father as God and you know it's very clear there. Um, but there are quite a few clear references to Jesus, the Son, being God himself as well. So I've listed a few of these here. You've got John chapter 1, the Word was with God and the Word was God. um a, a good one because it talks about Jesus is God but Jesus was with God and it's sort of the idea of a separate person is starting to come through there. You've got John 8:58, where Jesus says, Before Abraham was born, I am taking the name of God, the Hebrew name of God for himself, you've got John 20 where Thomas says my Lord and my God, people have tried to sort of wriggle out of that one and say well he was talking to Jesus but referring to God and and basically grammatically he means exactly what it it appears to mean. Um, Hebrews 1 um, talks about Jesus being the exact representation of God and it when we think of representation, we, we sort of think, well, maybe it's like a picture and image. But actually, the word is even stronger than that in the Greek. It means the exact duplicate of God. Um, and there, there are various other ones where, uh, like two, uh, Titus 2 talks about our great God and Saviour, uh, Jesus. And 2 Peter 1, verse 1, our, again, our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Uh, Romans 9, verse 5, the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised some of those have possible you might find in the footnotes of some of the the translations there might be sort of alternative readings that could perhaps lessen the the impact of that but um in all cases the you know the the, the actual translation that we have is the most likely because the you know grammatically and theologically um it is you know fairly or fairly clear and then there are of course the the other, other, tra- other scriptures which are very clear in themselves so it's the united opinion of biblical scholars apart from the the outliers like Jehovah's Witnesses that the Bible portrays Jesus as fully divine Um, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe he was a created being um, which is not a new thing Um, It was first proposed by Arius uh, in the fourth century and so basically the Jehovah's Witnesses are Arians. they they subscribe to that heresy which was decided it was a heresy by the church in the fourth century Council of Nicaea in 325 AD the Nicene Creed that many churches still recite on a Sunday um, was formulated there to basically reject the teaching of the Aryans um, to say that no Jesus was not just a created being he was um, he was fully and uh, eternally God. Um, <coughs> where are we? I missed out one of the scriptures, I think. Oh yeah, Isaiah 9, yeah, where it talks about uh, the titles of the Messiah. And one of them is Mighty God. So so the Father is God, Jesus is God, and then of course the Holy Spirit um, appears in many different scriptures and is equated with God in, in various ways. So Acts 5 where it talks about Ananias and Sapphira, and Peter says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit, and in the same breath he says, you know, you've not lied to men, lied to God. Um, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, um, Paul talks about, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, and God lives in you, um, and basically equating God's Spirit with God himself. And there's lots and lots of scriptures Uh, that do that, you know, where can I go from your presence, Psalm 139, you know, where can I go from your spirit, you know, it's equating God's presence with God's spirit, Um, the spirit searches the mind of God, 1 Corinthians 2, Uh, who knows the deep things of God except the person, or the deep things of a person except the person's spirit within them, Um, and who knows the thoughts of God except God's spirit, so, and then there's another one in John chapter 3, Uh, where Jesus talks about needing to be born of the Spirit and in 1 John 3 uh, the same writer is talking about you need to be born of God so being born of the Spirit is being born of God and there are lots of places where the Holy Spirit again is is just all over the place that the Holy Spirit is um, is seen to do the things that God does Um, so and of course there's all the Trinitarian passages that we're going to come on to um so the father is god the son is god and the holy spirit is god however um, the whole bible is absolutely insistent that there is only one god you know deuteronomy 6 you know there's what you know the, here, the, here O israel the lord our god is one isaiah 45 it comes in again and it's backed up in the new testament 1 timothy 2 there's one god and one mediator between god and man the man jesus christ uh, James 2, he talks about, you believe there's one God? Good, even the demons believe that, you know, so that the New Testament writers back up this idea that there's only one God. And that was really the thing that distinguished um, Israel over all the other the nations. So if you take those two facts, you know, the fact that the Spirit is God, the Father is God, the Son is God, and that there's only one God, if you take that on its own, then that would lead you to think, okay, well, maybe there is this one God with three hats. You know, he's got three personas, he's got three... um, He plays three roles, you know, at different times. Uh, Like an actor, you know, playing different roles at different times for different purposes. And that's something called modalism, uh, which again the church decided was a heresy. And the idea of that is it's God has three modes of appearing. Um, And that was rejected by the early church. I've just put a little note here, a little um, it was an interesting little point that I discovered when I was researching for this. There is actually a modern Protestant denomination that still have modalist beliefs. Uh, the United Pentecostal Church, and they used to be part of the Assemblies of God apparently, and um, were sort of forced out because they didn't believe in the Trinity. Uh, but they insist on people being baptized in the name of Jesus. You know, their slogan is kind of, Jesus only. Um, and they don 't believe in the Trinity, so they 're modalists um, so yeah, i didn't i wasn 't aware of that so um but generally speaking, the church rejected that, and the reason they rejected it was because the Bible portrays these personal interactions between the the three persons of God, so a clear one is, for example, at the baptism of Jesus, where God the Son is baptized. Uh, and the Father speaks from heaven and the Spirit descends like a dove. Um, Or where Jesus prays to the Father, or where the Spirit or the Son intercede for us. You know, there are different scriptures that talk about the Spirit interceding for us before the Father, or Jesus intercedes for us. Um, So, you need three facts, really, to describe the Trinity. You need the fact that um, there's one God. You need the fact that there are... um, that Jesus is God, that each person is fully God, but you also need the fact that there are actually three persons that have their own individual uh, existence within the whole whilst still being, three, uh, still being one God. So that's an amazing um, revelation, if you like, about the nature of God. So if you think, well, okay, if that is so fundamental, if that's the way God is, if that's the very fabric of God, then that has to be That has to come through strongly in the Bible, and, of course, it does. Um, Hints in the Old Testament, stronger in the New. So if we look at the Old Testament first, the very first chapter of the Bible, God says, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And it gets repeated in a few of the verses subsequent as well. God's using this we and us when talking about God. And some people have said, well, maybe that's like the royal we, you know, where the the king says, you know, uh, we are not, you know, we are not amused. That was Victoria, wasn't it? So that was more the queen. But anyways, (laughs) um, the royal we, you know, the kind of plural of majesty. And they point to um, certain Greek things. I think Alexander the Great used that kind of terminology. So in Greek, it is known to use that. But in Hebrew, in Old Testament Hebrew, there's no other place anywhere in the Bible that, that uses this royal we. So it's unknown in Hebrew. Um, so it's unlikely that it's the royal we. Others have suggested that God is kind of having a chat with the angels, you know, who were around at the time, saying, let's, let's, make, let's make man. But it says, let's make man in our image. You know, we're not made in the image of angels. And angels didn't take part in the creation. They, you know, the sun did, but the, um, angels didn't. So it's a mysterious passage if you don't believe in the Trinity but early Christian theologians were pretty united in believing that we have God revealing himself from the word go as a plurality and there are a couple of other times in Genesis um, where he does that Uh, Isaiah 6 verse 8 is an interesting one because he says who whom shall I send who will go for us and so you've got the singular and the plural in the same same passage Um, Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And then he talks about um, God has set you above your companions. And it's sort of, the seemingly two persons being referred to as God, and it's quoted in Hebrews 1 as well. Um, Psalm 110, you know, the Lord says to my Lord. And even Jesus pointed that out. It's quoted loads of times in the New Testament, is that psalm. And even Jesus pointed out, you know, who's David talking about? You know, if David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? You know, and so, who would David call Lord? He's the king. You know, he's the top of the the tree, you know. So, the Lord God is talking to the Lord, who is the Messiah. You know, so it's God the Father talking to God the Son. That's the way we would understand it. But it's coming through in these kind of slightly obscure, slightly veiled ways in the Old Testament. Because God didn't want to, you know, he wanted to show the people that he was one God. He didn't want to reveal himself as three gods. Um, Because it's a progressive revelation, it took something else to take them to that point where they could actually see the way God really was himself. Um, Just one more before we move on to the New Testament. Isaiah 48 in verse 16, we seem to have references to all three of the persons. It says, and now the Sovereign Lord has sent me endowed with his Spirit. And the speaker there is most likely the servant of the Lord, that there's uh, the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One that Isaiah's prophesying about. Now it could be, as Isaiah might be speaking of himself, you know, I'm the prophet, I've been sent, but the one, just a few chapters before, the one who is endowed with the Spirit is the servant of the Lord. Mm-hmm. This mysterious servant that appears. So it looks like you've got the Trinity in that In that verse there but it took something else some other revelation to kind of get them to the point where they could really understand or start to understand if anybody can uh, this idea of God being three and one and that was basically the understanding that their expected king they were always expecting David's descendant to come and to rescue them and to to re-establish the kingship and, and rescue Israel and they were expecting uh, um, a ruler to arise, what they didn 't realize that that ruler was actually mes- the the Messiah himself was actually israel 's god come to rescue them in person. They did expect God to come and rescue them, but they didn 't they hadn 't connected the two you know they believed that there was going to be a coming king, and they believed that God himself in some way was going to come, but they didn 't realize it was one and the same person, so once they understood that, the way was open then for God to reveal his plural nature in more depth, and that's what we see in the New Testament, um, as they gradually realise what it what it's about. So the, the Trinity, fittingly, is revealed both at the start and the end of the earthly ministry of Jesus. So we've already mentioned the baptism, so in Matthew 3, verses 16 to 17, the Father speaks, the Spirit descends um, on the Son. And then, of course, at the very other end, at the, in the great, what we call the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 19, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> it's interesting if, um, you know, if, if somebody doesn't believe, say, that the Holy Spirit is God. Um, or if they believed that Jesus was a created being, or whatever. It, you take that scripture, if you were to say something like, baptise them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Archangel Michael, mm-hmm. it would be completely wrong, you know, it wouldn't feel right, would it? Because you're putting the Archangel Michael on the same level as as the Father and the Son. So it's, it shows there that the, the Spirit is divine, you know, it's, it's, the Spirit is a person, same as... Um, the other two, and, yeah, we're not going to be baptised in the name of a created being. So, the names Father and Son emphasise personhood and family relationship. Um, As I've said, the Holy Spirit is referred to as a person on the same level like the others. What's really interesting about this scripture is that there's only one name, Uh, well there's a couple of things actually there's the fact that there's only one name it's not names plural Uh, but it's not the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit as if they're all rolled into one it's sort of almost separating them it says the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and this repetition of and of the almost emphasises and slightly separates them to say look this is not one and the same person this is one God one name but three persons, and so that formulation of words kind of cleverly encapsulates the doctrine of Trinity, I think. Um, And I love the fact that when we get baptised, we often use that phrase. Um, Some people insist on, well, you know, in lots of places in the book of Acts they're baptised into the name of Jesus, and they are. but I love the fact that when we get baptized, we're plunged into God. We get the whole of God. We don't just get one, but we're baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And, and we, you know, you get one, you get them all. Um, and we can, you know, we'll talk about that later, perhaps. A um, few more scriptures. Um, New Testament. When we realize that the New Testament refers to God the Father as God, Theos, and generally to Christ as Lord, kurios, then you can start to see other Trinitarian expressions that are scattered through the, the New Testament. So 1 Corinthians 12, 4-6, Paul says, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it's the same God at work. So you've got... Um, You've got God, you've got the spirit, you've got the Lord. Um, in 2 Corinthians 13, I um, in Second Corinthians 14, uh, 13 verse 14, you've got may the, l- the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, very famous verse. But again, you've got Christ, you've got God, you've got the Holy Spirit, in a different order again, but they're all three there. Ephesians 4, verses 4 to 6, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And even though Paul's bringing in all these other things and it's about oneness, he brings in the Spirit, the Lord Jesus and God the Father, intentionally into that verse. Just in case we think it's only Paul, First uh, Peter 1, verse 2, Uh, We're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. So even Peter is bringing in these three. Uh, Jude again, uh, verses 20 and 21. Dear friends, uh, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. So they were it was emerging in their thinking that you've got the Holy Spirit, you've got God as, as the Son, Jesus, and you've got God the Father as well, and they hadn't quite spelled it all out. It took another 300 years for the church to really try and spell it out. Uh, but they understood it, you know, and it came out in their writing. Um, there is one other scripture that people sometimes uh, refer to in 1 John 5 um, and it appears in the King James Version, and sometimes in footnotes in other Bibles, um, and it talks about there are three that testify, and the, the actual, most of the translations say, there are three that testify on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. But then in some, that they've inserted, and the King James inserts, there are three that testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, and these three are one. And I remember reading that in my Gideon's Bible when I was about... 13 or no probably about 16 thinking oh well there you go that's proof of the trinity then the snag with that is that 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 wording only appears it doesn't appear before the 14th century (laughs) in any manuscript um and even athanasius i i didn't mention him but it's in the notes athanasius was a guy who strongly defended the trinity and really beat up the arians you know metaphorically speaking um and defeated the Arians eventually, and Athanasius was a staunch defender of the Trinity, but when he, in his writing, quotes 1 John 5, he doesn't use that formulation, which he would do if it was really there in the original. So we can't use that, you know, there was the Father, there was the Word, there was the Spirit, and these three are one, because it wasn't there in the Greek, it was was inserted in the Middle Ages, probably. Um, So quite rightly, most of the translations have taken it out. Uh, But there's enough there anyway um, to show that it was there in the the thinking and in the theology of the people. So (coughs) before we have a a break and perhaps some more lemon and raisin scones, just to hammer that point home, uh, for those who are sitting comfortably by their their heaters whilst we're watching the snow outside the windows, um (laughs) then... uh, one thing I want to say before that is, uh, do these different persons have different roles? And this is something where people sometimes uh, use these expressions. They talk about the economic trinity and the immanent trinity. That's immanent, not imminent. And what they mean by that is, the, the economic trinity is... Economic just means the way things work in practice. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with money, but it, it's about how do things you know what's the order of things for practical purposes so household economics used to mean you know the way you did things practically in a household um, and the imminent trinity is who god is in himself eternally and so people sometimes separate these um, <coughs> it's fairly clear from the new testament teaching that father son and spirit play different parts in their interaction with creation and especially in in the work of salvation so jesus submits to his father in his incarnations particularly when he's you know walking around on the earth the holy spirit is sent out from the father at the request of the son but does that indicate a hierarchy of authority in god that existed from eternity past or was that just the way god chose to work in his interaction with creation and the way we answer that question is absolutely critical um, not just in our understanding of God, but the way we understand ourselves, relationships, church, everything really. Now, some people uh, believe that there is an eternal subordination of the Son to the Father, and probably the, the Spirit to the Father and the Son. In other words, they see that there is a a hierarchy of authority in the Godhead that's always existed, and they often use that as a way of justifying or explaining their theology about um, structure and hierarchy and authority in the church and in the home, particularly with regard to uh, subordination of women. Um, But, if you did have this uh, supposed eternal hierarchy within God, then it would really mean that God, the three persons, were not equal. you know, and people say, no, no, you can have equality without, with, but whilst having difference. But really it's just, um, it's not a, an accurate picture of God. And so the early Christians, in reflecting on, on the scriptures and on what the words were and what they meant, they came to visualise the Trinity not as a pyramid of authority, but a circle a circle of relationship, and it wasn't thought of as a static circle, but a kind of living moving circle, like a flow, like a dance. And they gave it the name perichoresis, that was the name they used before they had the name Trinity, which peri, peri means around, Choresis means sort of to move into and out of, it's where we get choreography from, so some people have referred to it as like a circle dance. Um, so many people over the last sort of 10, 15, 20 years have have been really looking into this and recapturing a lot of the early thinking about the Trinity and realizing afresh that this is Mm -hmm. the way it is, that there's an equality in God and no hierarchy and that has a massive impact. So we're going to stop and have a bit of a discussion. Um, So this is a bit of a loaded question. Do you think having a good theology of the trinity is important to our everyday lives and if so why and what happens if we don't keep the concept of trinity central to our understanding of god so i'm going to have a scone rest my voice and uh, have a little bit of a discussion and then we'll get on to to part two great okay well good conversation good scones to be recommended um I know I keep going on about this, but next time we'll we'll make sure there's some nice ones next time as well. Um, So what I did, uh, I I said during the break, that um, what I did in the first session was really outline the kind of conventional theology, if you like. Um, I do tend to like to give people a bit of a grounding, you know, dot dot a few of the I's and cross a few of the T's. What I want to do in the second session now is just look at the impact, the massive impact... Of good Trinitarian theology if we really understand the implications and and this is as, as we said again in the break that it, it's some of it you've just got to understand in your heart not in your mind because if we understand what kind of God we have then we understand that we we don't live under a threatening sky You know, not that God is up in the sky, but, you know, I mean, we live under a friendly sky, as Tozer, I think, said. And I've got a couple of quotes from Tozer here, actually, in the notes. A couple of similar things. He said, um, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And then the next one is, we can never know who or what we are till we know at least something of what God is. So you put those two together and, and you get what, uh, what Gareth Dufty often says when he comes, which is, our view of God determines how we live, how well we live. So a, a Trinitarian understanding of God will deeply affect every sphere of our lives and shapes our view of all other of doctrines and theology. Uh, there's a great guy called Baxter Kruger um, who's uh, written a book called The Great Dance. The references in here. Um, And he describes the three persons of the Trinity existing eternally together in a glorious and harmonious movement. And again, it's like a dance. Um, And each of the persons is is flowing into and out of and around the others. And you've got this picture of um, mutual submission, mutual sharing, mutual joy. And so God lives eternally in a state of movement, of creativity, of joy, of satisfaction, of love, of sacrifice, you know, of, of one giving to the other and, and submitting to the other, but then flowing back again. So there's, there's, in Trinity, there's a constant outflow, but also a flow back as well, so that none of the persons is, is hard done by, if you like. There's a flowing out, but then there's a drawing back in. Uh, Richard Raw talks a lot about that in his book he's written a book called The Divine Dance which is a similar <laughs> title to Baxter Kruger's and he refers to Baxter Kruger anyway but he talks about this constant outflow and then an in-gathering um, and there's no hierarchy there's no order of importance in this, this circle, it's a self-giving relationship um, nobody's dominant in there, the, the, each of the persons enjoy one another, they bless and love one another um, so, in the outworking of creation and the outworking of of, of redemption, um, all three persons are working together. They take on different roles sometimes, but it's always in partnership, it's in cooperation, it's one God, like you were saying, Paul, in the break. You know, it's, it's one God acting in love, the whole Trinity working together. Um, and there's this creativity and the self-disclosing, self-giving nature at the heart of everything. Um, if we understand God that way, it will affect our explanations of the atonement. You know, there are some ways that you could describe the atonement to somebody which sounds rather like God fighting against God. And I, I know that's a caricature of a, of a particular view, but but it, this understanding of God should affect the way we... Uh, Explain and, and understand the, the atonement and other things um, There's a familiar phrase in 1 John 4 verse 8 God is love um, and Christians rightly uh, point at that and love that phrase, but if you think about it, it was actually CS Lewis that pointed out that if if God is love then that has to mean God is more than one person because you can't have love eternally if there isn't a person to love and a person to do the loving. You know, love doesn't exist in, 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 in oneness, you know, you have to have another. And so if God is eternally love, then he must exist in community, you know, before there was anything created. Otherwise, God had to create in order to love. But we believe that God is eternally love, that he exists in community with himself. So God is relationship personified. You know, you could say in the beginning was relationship. Um, You know, Jesus is the eternal word. You know, word needs another as well. Word is about self-disclosure. It's about communication. You can't have that unless there's another. And he's, he's the eternal word, you know. And if the essence of God is relationship and community, then so much comes from that. You know we're made in the image of god genesis 1 26 you know we're being transformed into his image second corinthians 3 verse 18 we're being transformed into the image of god so if, and and we are made originally in that image so um if god is community if god is relationship then that means that infused in our whole makeup as human beings is that um, You know, we're planting of the Lord for the display of His splendour, Isaiah 60 and 61. So our, the purpose and the vocation of humanity is to be the image of God in the earth. And if that image is loving relationship, then that means that's how we demonstrate God's nature. You know, even Jesus said, you know, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You know, how clear can can it get, you know? Um... So this understanding of Trinity as a non-hierarchical, self-giving, others-focused, creative flow um, is a foundation for so many other things. You know, it's going to affect every area of life, even things like business, politics. um, All these different areas ought to have a Trinitarian flavor, a Trinitarian impact. It's interesting that even in... Secular business books these days. The idea and the concept of servant leadership is quite big, because people have realised actually it works well that way. Mm-hmm. And the idea of not having a hierarchy—it's—it's—it's it's, it's being resisted in certain areas, but in certain areas, this idea of there not being a hierarchy but there being a different function has been catching on. Right from the days of the, the sort of the Japanese techniques, where the um, back in. Um, even back in the 80s when I I used to work for a steel company and uh, we were told about these strange Japanese techniques where the managers uh, and the supervisors all wore the same uniform as the workers and they walked about and everybody looked the same. They had different functions but nobody was setting themselves up, you know, so even back then it was starting to, to come. But this is so fundamental, you know, this idea of Trinity and And this concept of the Trinity is so foundational to everything we are. And I believe that's why we are what we are, in particular, as King's Church. And that's not to separate us out from anyone else. Uh, But I think if we add something in a flavour, if we have a particular flavour that we add to this town, to this region, it's this thinking. Um, It means, for example, that the nature of church is first and foremost understood as a family. Mm. And that's why we talk about the King's Church family. All the time it's about family. It's not an organization, a business venture, an army, hospital, teaching establishment, you know, despite what we're doing today. And, you know, but it, it's a family and it, it's, it's about diversity in unity. Um, it's about being others focused and so on. But we are, we are to be an incarnate picture of Trinitarian love you know, expressing that sacrifice and faithfulness and, and the generosity of God, you know. And so if you think about leadership, Christian leadership, if you think about the way the Trinity works, that's why Rue doesn't like to be called the senior elder or the senior pastor or whatever. It, you know, it, it's non-hierarchical. It's like, well, we're a team, we have functions. You know, we're not. we haven't got a system in our church of... You've got the ordinary bods and then you've got the, lo- the the life group leaders and then you've got maybe some supervisors and some deacons and some elders and then the apostle, you know, it's, it's not like that, you know. We have diversity of function based on God's, God's appointing, God's gifting, but it's a mutual submission and a servant heart and nobody's senior to anybody else. And so our image of the forest as well represents this creativity where ideas come from anywhere and and it's not all top-down from the leadership we are going to do this God's given the big man the vision and we're all going to follow it it's this creativity It's this flow around you know uh, and our understanding of trinity is 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 where that comes from um, not rigid lines of authority and, and importance but it also affects our understanding of mission um, I used to think of mission as evangelism, you know, to get people saved. Um, And I imagined that mission started after the fall, you know, a recovery project, God's Plan B maybe, um, you know, a sort of uh, rescue operation. And it started at the fall and it finished when the last person had become a Christian. And that was mission. But I've realized that mission is actually fundamentally and eternally in the heart of God because mission is about revealing who God is. The mission, God's on a mission all the time, even back in eternity past one person of the Trinity is revealing themselves and giving themselves away and revealing God to God. And we are doing that in our mission. Yes, it does include trying to persuade people and and show people God and to rescue them from themselves and from, you know, to to bring salvation. That's all still true. But it's wider than that. It's about revealing who God is to the whole of creation and especially to, to, to lost humanity, revealing who he is and what he's done for them but mission doesn't stop then because we keep echoing the greatness of God into creation even when the new creation is fully here and we enter that that eternal state where there's a new heaven and a new earth we'll stay on mission because we're still spreading the goodness and the glory of God through the the universe through through whatever else will exist uh, at that time Um, so mission you suddenly think wow it's not about me having to talk to my neighbors It's about me showing and sharing who this amazing God is. And when we understand the Trinity and and the generosity and the the flow of God, it becomes a lot easier to do. Um, So just a a few final thoughts then. Um, One of the most amazing things actually about the Trinity is where we are in that Um, It particularly comes out in in places like John 17, you know, you were mentioning John 14, 15, you know, Jesus talking in a personal way about his relationship with his Father and about the Father and us and the Spirit and the Spirit coming alongside us and we just see this incredible union between the persons of the Trinity, you know, Jesus is saying, I in you and you in them and they in us and everybody in everybody else. So if Jesus is in God, if the Father, and the Father is in Jesus, and yet we are in Jesus, and, you know, and the Spirit is in us, and we are in Christ, and everybody is in. And there's this inclusiveness. Mm-hmm. And it's as though, and people have described it in this way, that there's this dance going on with these three persons from eternity past. And it's as though in, in the Incarnation... And, and through the cross and resurrection of Christ, it's as though these three, uh, this circle, has kind of broken, if you like, and extended hands towards human beings and drawn them into this dance. Um, Richard Raw talks about this an awful lot, and so does Baxter Kruger in their, in their writings. You know, they, this idea that we are caught up, that the whole of humanity actually has been included in this dance. Um, many people, of course, refuse to dance and, uh, and start doing their own dance, you know, effectively. And, 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 kind of, and God doesn't force anybody to do it. But we're in union with the Trinity. Um, we often underestimate ourselves, and, and obviously, it's all through grace, it's all through what Jesus has done. And I'm not minimizing the sin and the rebellion that, that had to be dealt with. But we are seated on the throne as co-heirs and co-rulers with Christ. You know, we, um, there's a couple of scriptures here: Romans 8:17, Revelation 3:21. But we can look those up in a bit later. But we are seated in heavenly places with Christ. He's given us the right to sit on His throne. Um, we're co-heirs with Him. So our rightful place is within that dance, within that flow. Um, 2 Peter 1 verse 4, he talks about us participating in the divine nature. You know, which doesn't get mentioned that much. You know, people almost don't imagine the consequences or the implications of that, you know. But being truly human is to participate in the divine which is incredible you know. we are not the creator and yet the creator has joined himself to us yeah. it doesn't mean that we're the same it's like the trinity you know the three persons of the trinity are separate but they're in union they're one and we are one with him and we're one with one another but we don't lose our individuality we don't lose our personality otherwise there wouldn't be relationship you can't have relationship if you haven't got some kind of distinctness so God doesn't absorb us and, and we, we don't lose our distinctness but we're included in the divine life in that dance and so our job is to reflect God in that <clears throat> there's actually a, some of the thinking around here is is quite challenging um, Baxter Kruger for example um, would say, in a sense, every human being is in the dance, whether they know it or not. And so, evangelism to him. And, and if you remember, Francois de Toi came a couple of years ago, rapid-fire, uh, prophetic teacher-type guy. R- yeah, writer of the Mirror Bible. Um, and he he was saying this that you know when we when we preach the gospel, we're not saying you need to do this, you need to do that, you're saying, you're announcing who, who people really are. Um, people, and, and if you go down this train of thought, you know, you could almost say, well, there's a sense in which everybody is in Christ. Because Jesus is the representative human being, he is the representative person, and humanity has been forever caught up into the Godhead. Now, people get a little nervous because they say, well, does that mean then that everybody will be saved? And people like Baxter Kruger and say, they say, no, um, we're not saying, we're not universalists. You know, we're, we're just saying that everybody is included. God has reconciled himself to everyone. But in order for there to be relationship, there has to be a choice. There has to be some kind of choice. Um it's not you know it is a done deal in one sense but people can refuse to dance they can refuse to be in that circle they can step out of it to their own damage and detriment um, and it and the and the kind of brokenness and the loneliness and the and the cutting off of the flow that that entails um you know you don't god doesn't need to punish them because you didn't want to punish them but it is its own punishment if you exclude yourself in that way. So, so this thinking is kind of wow, you know. Um, when I say everybody is in Christ, um, Paul in the Bible says he talks about some people and he says they were in Christ before I was. So Paul does actually think that there was a time when he wasn't in Christ and then a time that he was. So I'm not saying that everywhere in the Bible where it says those in Christ. I think most of the time it means those who are consciously participating in Christ. So It doesn't need to completely change our understanding of all those scriptures. But there is a sense in which every human being their rightful place is with Christ because they've been caught up into this because of who Jesus, because of the incarnation, because of what Jesus did, they've been caught up. But it's mind blowing. It's hard to, hard to kind of to grasp almost. But it's so wonderful. Um, I've got a load of quotes that I will I will send out as a document uh, just on people's thinking about the Trinity, and it's about it's about. 13, fourteen pages, but you know when you've got some time, just scroll through just they're just little chunks from different authors trying to express what this is all about what what the Trinity is about, what it means, what the implications are and it's quite it's a good devotional exercise and a thinking exercise as well so I will send that out but I'm going to quote with with one of them uh, and it's from a guy called Daryl Johnson who's written about the Trinity and he says. At the center of the universe, there is a relationship. It's out of that relationship that we were created and redeemed. And it's for that relationship we were created and redeemed. And I think that's a good place to stop.